0: Welcome to the Women in Business podcast series, part of BIV Today, the business intelligence podcast from business in Vancouver. I'm Haley Wooden, executive editor of BIV. This week, we launched the latest issue of Women in Business magazine, and in conjunction with that on this show... I'm hosting conversations with a series of BC-based female business leaders. Joining me today is Anna Sainsbury, co-founder and CEO of GeoComply, a unicorn company that really is an anchor in Vancouver's and BC's tech sector. It offers geolocation tools used by some massive companies, including MGM, Caesars, and DraftKings to help them fight fraud and ensure legal and regulatory compliance. Anna is widely recognized as a tech leader here. She's also a former BIB. 40 under 40 award recipient, Uh, Anna, welcome to the show. And thanks so much for joining our women in business podcast series. Thank you so
1: much for having me. It's an absolute honor.
0: Now, if my math is right on this, I believe you co-founded GeoComply about a decade ago. Is that right?
1: Yes. Time is flying by now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. And so it's gone from startup within a decade to now being one of the largest private tech companies in BC I'd like to take us back about 10 years. Tell us a bit about what those early days were like. And did you have a sense back then of where this company was going to go?
1: Um, You know, I I have to say two things. One, in my mind, the company still feels like a startup. The stresses from the first day, I feel like live in an entrepreneur forever. Um, And so every day that we're live, I knock on wood and I feel really thankful. But then I look back to those Early days when, I mean, sometimes you go to the office, you're twiddling your thumbs, right? No one's sending you any emails. No one really cares what you're doing. They just want you to stop spamming them with your ideas and and insights. So, uh, things have changed considerably now. I do have uh, quite a lot of incoming emails uh, <laughs> from within the company and from our customers, but I mean, those early days. I knew something was going to change because there were some federal regulations that was prohibiting the U.S. uh, gaming market. And at the time, it was really poker and casino that the U.S. was looking at. And there was this federal requirement to enforce enforce virtual borders um, beyond what any other government had really implemented. And so there were no technical solutions for something that had such a harsh consequence, which is a federal felony. And so I set out to create a solution that would address this problem. And, you know, over time, sometimes if you discover a problem before an industry really realizes that it's going to be a hurdle, there's a bit of a balance between did you create this problem or did you solve it? Because (laughs) if you're the one that both explains that there's a problem, but don't worry, I have a solution. um, Sometimes it can be a little suspicious. So Um, although there were some concerns in those early days that we were there maybe too early to the market. But in actual fact, it only ended up probably being if we came nine months later, we would have hit it on and people would have said, oh, I'm so happy you have a solution. Um, But uh, it was such a fun ride. I always look back on those first couple of years when you're fighting for your life, um, hanging on with your fingernails, uh, such a rush. I'm an adrenaline junkie. So
0: That type of stuff inspires me. You got into the right space then being a tech entrepreneur.
1: (laughs) I know. Well, I also didn't know that it was going to be so stressful. I guess I was young. I just didn't really think it through. And I enjoy stress. But I didn't really think about how much responsibility it is having a business that runs every single minute every single day of the year without a break. And I mean, it's not like we have a coffee shop that we can just close up after hours and go home and and have a rest. I mean, you're on all the time in tech.
0: Absolutely. Now, aside from the emails going from maybe not getting emails every day to getting, I don't know, countless hundreds, thousands of emails all the time now, in what other ways has your role changed as a business leader over the last 10 years?
1: Oh, I joke in the early days, Someone would call up and, you know, I'd be the receptionist and then they'd like, let me speak to legal. And then I'd transfer through to myself and then be customer support and account management. And um, I love that. I'm a really hands-on person and to be in the weeds makes me feel more confident. And so for me, as our business grew, it was a huge learning curve and required a lot of training on Like, what is the balance between knowing how your business is actually operating versus managing your business and setting that vision and managing the trajectory and the team in it? So um, that's been a big learning curve. I do go back. I mean, right now I have scheduled time where I go and sit with teams to learn about some different insights that we've been providing that are newer to our business. And I like to know everything. So uh, there's a balance there. But, you know, corporate governance is is something that has been newer and systems and processes and all of the things that you need to implement within your business. I mean for me concentrating on it because when you have a startup it's like you're anti bureaucracy, you're anti big company and you attract a team that loves these things about you especially if they came from big blue chip companies. And so it's like keeping that secret sauce within the organization. Um, while also maturing so that you don't burn out and frustrate your team and that you can attract the talent that you need to get you to where you're headed. So yeah, I still spend my time. I love spending time on product and with our customers. I enjoy, I've been spending a lot more time in human resources and people and culture, but uh, yeah. And then corporate governance.
0: Being a hands-on leader, that's not necessarily the leadership style of all corporate CEOs. Was that just something that's very innate to you and your personality? Is it something that you emulated in leaders you admired? How did you develop your leadership style?
1: Um, I think, honestly, I stumbled into it and probably dropped some, I mean, which some could argue are are bad habits, right? As you get to a certain size, it becomes negligence. Um, And you know, I just, I feel more fulfilled when I'm more tactile. Mm -hmm. And so there's also a greater sense of achievement when you really feel like you had your hands dirty to complete a project versus always being 3000 feet above ground, I think is isolating and it's hard to have that camaraderie in the same way. And so, um, it's something that that I found. I think also I really see GeoComply as a product-led company. And with that and still having the founders in the company, it kind of means that I'm focused on the product and the problem our customers have. And so that just means I need to be in the weeds. Otherwise, we'll be developing products that nobody wants to pay for or use, which is also a bit depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, you've done, I mean, a remarkable job with your teams in scaling up GeoComply. As I'm sure you know, there's a lot of talk in this province about how we get more scale up companies and not just being a province of startup companies. Do you have any lessons learned from scaling a company to what it is today on what worked, what it takes to move from a start to scale up? Any reflections?
1: My gosh. I mean, I don't know. I've probably made every single mistake that there is to make. I think you kind of just have to to fumble forward. And, you know, I don't think that there's one recipe for success. I have lots of other friends that are entrepreneurs. Um, The business or the market that we serve, primarily the gaming industry, is very tight knit. And so I, of course, survey my close contacts and clients in that space to see what works for them. And it's not always a one-size-fits-all. Even for us, we're an international business. And what works in Vancouver doesn't always work in Montreal or Toronto or Ho Chi Minh or uh, Warsaw and London. So, you know, everywhere needs some level of, of flexibility. I think... Um, you know, how it really felt for us in terms of getting recognized and being a destination for people to consider, especially in BC, where we don't have customers. And so we're, we're not really a known brand that is very challenging. And I think once I wrap my head around the fact that I needed to have a communications team to help, you know, put a megaphone on my voice, um, it was it was a great help, but also for us, and I think this is a little unfortunate when Blackstone invested in us, it put us on the map, and it wasn't really something for me that felt like that should be the validator of our success. I'm more satisfied when our customers say we're doing a good job or when we launch a new product that like changes how governments see fraud or you know, con- control the cost of fraud or for us when we started leaning into human trafficking and child exploitation and, and trying to find, you know, some answers to the billions of questions out there on how we can do something to, to change this. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I mean, the things that, that actually get traction and, and hit the news aren't always the things that myself and my team holder had a pie on.
0: Right. That's very that's interesting. I'm sure there are lots of successes you've had and that your team celebrates, but that aren't quote unquote newsworthy or it's not what people pick up on. Do you mind sharing maybe one or two of those now? Here's the here's the opportunity to, to give them <laughs> <Yeah>. some voice. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, I look at uh, I hired this
1: um, very talented woman in Washington, D.C., and she is just the most optimistic person I have ever met. But when you talk to her, she just knows so much about some of the world's hardest issues. And, um, you know, the first conversations that she had with me were on responsible gaming, which, of course, because we work in the gaming space, you have to be a part of the solution and not just a part of the problem. And so, you know, really taking accountability for that. And um, it led us to start up a nonprofit, um, which was you know, great to lean into and gave within the team almost that relief that we can do good and that we can be a part of this conversation. And that, you know, with the talent that we have in our team and the technology behind us, we can actually make a dent in some people's lives. That was really tremendous. And then, you know, this is about five or six years ago, she started telling me about how many children are exploited on the internet and, that led and she when she knew I was coming to D.C., so she got me to go to all of these talks and it led me to start talking to groups like Canadian Center for Child Protection and National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and looking at how the Internet serves so many of us in so many good ways. But where there are pitfalls, there's always some you know horrific, unintended consequence that the majority of the population sometimes You know, make worse just by, for instance, us using VPNs to watch television content in other jurisdictions has uh, an unknown but horrible consequence to to child exploitation. Mm -hmm. And us being able to, like, dive into that conversation and start donating our technology and our government relations resources and our influence with governments to try and drive that conversation forward, but also to help prosecute. Um, those that are exploiting children on the internet, those are the things we celebrate internally. Um, I think most people, especially in Vancouver that join our team, aren't financially driven. They're driven on a company that has a mission that is actually living up to what they say they're going to do. Uh, that's generally what I found. But I find in media, they still cover like how financially successful you are, which <laughs> it's good to be both because people still, <laughs> still want to get paid.
0: Yeah. No, that's true. I bet you that helps too with retention and recruitment, having that mission focused uh, model, especially in this market.
1: Yeah. And I think people want, you know, it's, it's one thing to be like, Oh, I signed up this customer and it's this amount of money, but it's another to be like, I changed the face of fraud or like, because of me and my team or the product that we create law enforcement, has a leg up on, you know, fighting money laundering or, or something that, that has a massive impact in society that we don't always talk about.
0: Absolutely. Are you finding you're moving the the needle on child exploitation through, you know, uh, donating your resources and working with various groups? Are things starting to change or is it a bit early in that conversation to know what might come?
1: Unfortunately, the problem is, is, growing faster than people are able to solve it. Um, The part that keeps me optimistic is I think that we're like in the beginning stages um, as governments start to look at like where do they draw the line on privacy and what does privacy mean? And I think that the the trade-off people are looking at is that they don't want everyone to be following what they're doing on the internet. But on the other side, if something horrible happens to a young, innocent person, we do want there to be consequences for them. But if we're not collecting any data, it's literally like law enforcement are have blindfolds. They're expected to drive cars and find bad guys. But on the Internet, it doesn't work like that. And so I think that over the next couple of years, we have the ability to work with legislators show them some interesting insights to help them make better informed decisions so that law enforcement in the years to come have more information to help them, um, especially in these areas. But yeah, I, I I can't really say I feel like this problem is going to go away in nine months. Unfortunately, it's too big.
0: No, no. But it, I'm glad we were able to make a little bit of space anyway to talk about the work that you're doing on that very important topic. I want to pivot at the top. I mentioned our women in business magazine. The theme of that is uh, the purpose was to highlight women who are leading in fields traditionally dominated by men. And it's no surprise that technology is one of those and remains largely one of those sectors. Has that affected your experience as a, a female entrepreneur in technology? Have you reflected on that at all? Has it been a challenge in any way?
1: You know, for me, it hasn't. I, um, haven't, I mean, I guess I have, I have been shy and sometimes I do have imposter syndrome, but that's not really in my mind related to my gender, but just related to my own hurdles. And I think that both men and women can share those. Um, I'm lucky. I mean, our largest, the the largest customer in the gaming industry uh, is a woman. And in the industry, they have 40% market share and that is FanDuel. So. Uh, I believe it's 40% this month, which is tremendous. And so I think in the industry, although it is dominated by men, there are some like really powerful women there too. And, you know, they've got great game. And uh, I do find that inspirational. I think within my organization, you know, we have 43% uh, women in the organization. We focus on it. It's a big part of where we want to head. And I share that same... Um, force for making this happen with a lot of our larger customers. And so it tends to mean that when we're having group conversations, there is actually quite a lot of diversity, which is amazing. It's hard to hold on to when you're growing so quickly though, because there's so many reasons to hire fast um, in a lot of teams. And that if you're hiring quickly, I mean, the reality is, I'm sure it's the same for me as it is for other people that 80% of the applicants, especially for senior roles, are men. They have a lot of great experience, which is wonderful for an organization like mine to digest and incorporate into where we want to get to. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, you need to be really resourceful and find that inspiration and bring that uh, female talent and surround yourself with, with the the talent that you need and i think you know i follow the stats and that is if you have an actual diverse team you're going to get better results and that doesn't say if all the team have the same level of experience right it's about having different ideas and different people at the at the table and so you know if you follow that i think you can say you know what what you did in the past isn't the only thing that matters it's actually that we need your voice at this table um, and you can reward and incentivize that. And we have, we put uh, one month of anyone's salary towards a learning and development budget that they can spend, as well as put a lot of money behind scholarships um, for minority groups so that we can get ahead of this, because we we also have a large office in Ho Chi Minh, where it's like under 10% of women are entering engineering courses and so that obviously means an output of those that that go into the workforce we need to hire like 100% of them in order for us to hit our diversity targets which i don't feel like is an unreasonable request i think if if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to have diversity you have to be unreasonable in your ask otherwise you'll just end up where we have been over the past hundreds of years
0: yeah sort of a no excuses approach. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you the money
1: to invest in making your team diverse. It's going to make us a better place. But, you know, to be a leader in tech and be a woman, I mean, I'm just lucky. That's kind of great timing, right? It, this is something we're all breaking ceilings at the moment. And uh, I feel happy to be a part of a, a group of women that are really leading the charge and taking their power or their ability to create and implement some requirements within large organizations to make it different and to show the rest of the world that it's not a big deal. Like there should just be diversity. Let's, let's just make it happen now.
0: Full we'll stop. No, I like that. I think we need to hear more of that. Um, as a female leader in tech and leading a widely successful company, is work-life balance in your vocabulary? I know you mentioned that you thrive on stress. Is it work all the time? Is there balance there? Because that's part of the diversity equation too. Sometimes, if you know, startup life is not for everyone necessarily.
1: Yeah, I uh, I was talking to someone about this maybe a year ago, and I was saying. As an entrepreneur, your life is not like one of those compartmentalized kids' plates <laughs> where your peas are in one section and, you know, it's like a giant salad. You know, my my kids and I talk about GeoComply and I work with my husband and my brother and, you know, my customers are my friends, right? It, it is my my life, but it's not who I am. And so I think that because I make that distinction... It's fine if my work doesn't end between nine and five because either does my role as a wife or as a mother, and I guess um, maybe I would say as an entrepreneur, I'm just comfortable with blurred lines and living in the gray. And that instead of instead of balance, meaning I just work nine to five for me, balance is like how well am I doing at all of my roles, and then am I being honest with myself? If I say yes to this, I'm saying no to something else. And I think that's like just a general principle in the office as well. If we say yes to this project, we have to say no to another because we don't have the time or the capacity. So uh, I just try to take full responsibility for myself and accept the stress that I have allowed to come into my life and find better ways to process it and then also find boundaries that I need to make if it's becoming overwhelming.
0: Before I let you go, Anna, it's been such a pleasure to have you on this show. 2023, right around the corner, what are your priorities? And is there anything we should be keeping an eye out for from GeoComply in the next year?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I have, uh, we've just been doing our OKRs for 2023. So I have both my uh, corporate ones and personal ones um, set out. I mean, one thing that I want to do is some holidays that I postponed with my uh, small children. Uh, which is mainly going to Machu Picchu and the Amazon um, as I have little ones. And there is nothing more fun than doing adventure travel with them when their eyes are filled with imagination and curiosity about nature. So I'm not postponing that anymore. Um, So I'm getting that on the books. I mean, in terms of where we're really focused, it is on excellence and what that means. So how we can be the chosen partner for our customers no matter what, and how you can build trust. And I look at that between how we exist with all of our partners, but also internally, as you can imagine, scaling at this rate and bringing so many new people into the organization, being spread across so many offices, um, having the right boundaries and ideals across the organization that we all share so that we can streamline communications and really know what each other are owning um, is going to be a key to our success. And so how to execute that is a big part of my Q1 for 2023.
0: That sounds great. Anna, thank you so much for coming on our show. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My guest today on our Women in Business podcast series, Anna Sainsbury, co-founder and CEO, of GeoComply. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor of Business in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening. We will have one more episode in our Women in Business podcast series airing tomorrow. You can find all episodes with this series and for our regular BIV Today podcast at biv.com audio. Thanks again for listening.